Earlier this week, the nation honored the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., a man who devoted his life to racial and social justice in America. And while the U.S. has made much progress on issues of race and equality since the 1960s, we still have so much work to do, as this past year reminded us over and over again. In the summer of 2020, at the height of social unrest, we talked to two people at the forefront of the fight for racial equality here in Pittsburgh, DeAndre Phillips Coble, then the president of the Pittsburgh State University Black Student Association, and Deetra Rose, the university's chief diversity officer. On this episode of Around the Block, DeAndre and Deetra are back to talk about what, if any, progress has been made since we last spoke. And so this uh, will be the uh, first of a two-part examination of of this uh, very issue that, uh, Brett, you're talking about. Uh, We wanted to have plenty of time to dive in to to hear both of them because um, they they have some really unique perspectives. Deetra, as a senior administrator or an administrator at the university and now in a new role and thinking about this from the standpoint of a, a, a administrator focused on diversity and inclusion and equity in an institutional framework and and having uh, more professional experience in that regard. And then from DeAndre's perspective as a 22 year old who's about to graduate college, who is a ROTC and has just a, a really incredible, has had an incredible experience in, at, at Pittsburgh State, but also is is really representative of that that next generation that we're going to have to rely upon to advance these things that are enshrined, have been enshrined since the Declaration of Independence and then in the Constitution. And, and uh, I think one of the things that, that we hope that, that, that folks will, will really focus on here with DeAndre is this sort of sense of that's embedded in the preamble of the Constitution. And that's this notion of a more perfect union that from the start, the framers were wise enough to not say in order to create a perfect union because they knew that there would have to be evolution if we were to do the things that they were trying to do, which was establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and, and these great and laudable goals for a government. And so DeAndre really represents uh, that spirit of, of 1776 in some ways, and I think uh, that is grounded in some, in some strong principles. And so DeAndre is always a joy to speak with. And then Dietra, as we said, with her perspective being being unique, we wanted to give them both time uh, to reflect on the events of last summer. Uh, and then also, uh, frankly, uh, since and what happened on January 6th and, and how the future looks to each of them. OK, so let's jump in now uh, into the first part of this discussion and this important discussion. As we celebrate the life, legacy and impact of Dr. Martin Luther King, let's go around the block with DeAndre and Dietra. Brett may have been talking to me about things for getting up. Yeah. yeah. Well, to be honest, uh, as Brett knows, I'm this is early for me, DeAndre. My brain doesn't turn on until about nine at least. So uh forgive me. Slide it in there. <laughs> so well, I appreciate you. Appreciate Wait. you being up early for me. <laughs> Anything for you, man. Um what's your uh what's your schedule like these days? Are you working or what are you doing? Yeah, so I just started my uh student teaching. Um practicum and so I'm working every day at Joplin East Middle School which is like 45 minutes away from Pitt I'm sure you know but um, yeah. 
Yeah. Today's a little different, though, because we it's our first, like, in-person class at Pitts uh, on campus. Yeah. So we're all going to be there later on today and finally get to see my friends and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, so it's uh, how's the uh, how's the break been for you? Uh, Christmas break has been awesome. I've done some traveling. I went to California and then I went to Detroit. Um, quarantining, of course, and all that good stuff, but making sure that I still, you know, get to explore a little bit. Yeah, were you visiting family in those places, or was that just sort of fun things? Family, friends, all that. That's great. <laughs> California is pretty locked down too, so we just stayed in the house most of the time. So, yeah. and just to, just so you guys know, I went ahead and started recording because I thought it wouldn't hurt to have a little bit of just oh yeah easy discussion. Uh, I know a lot of times we uh, we tend to like just dive right into like all right serious, you know. So <laughs> that's right. It wouldn't hurt to have a little bit of just this. <laughs> so uh, this is your last semester, right, DeAndre? Yeah, don't remind me. Um, <laughs> It's been a long, I guess you could say, three and a half years, um, starting in 2017. And actually, I keep on thinking about, like, my first day um, really deciding to come to Pitt State. It was, like, during the summer, my senior summer, and um, they had invited me down just to, like, do a tour. But I didn't know that I was going to be the only one here. Like, no students were here at all. It was just pretty yeah. empty. And, like, at first I really wanted to go to K-State just because, you know, K-State, Wildcats, you know, big college somewhat. Um, but I don't know. I think it was, like, just a really sunny day, and it caught me in the right mood. So it was, like, everything kind of lined up perfectly. And I was like, you know what? I think I could stay here for four years. <laughs> and then now I'm a senior in the league. And, I mean, it feels great, honestly. I'm glad I chose Pitt State. Well, we're glad you did, too. That's awesome. <laughs> That's uh, that's great. And you and you're so you're going to be commissions, is that right? In May, you said commissioned. You'll be commissioning in May. You're still ROTC, Mm -hmm. right? Uh huh. So I actually got my um branch finally. So I'm going to be an ordinance officer for the Kansas National Guard. Okay. Um, Ordinance is like logistics uh, and things like that. So I'm gonna stay here in Kansas for another, you know, five to eight years. And plus, I love Kansas. It's pretty chill. Yeah, um, I've been to a lot of different places like New York and all that. And just there's something about this Kansas Midwestern culture that I just find so like unique versus going to like those big cities like New York, where you're just an extra person in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, down here, you could just walk down the street and people will wave at you and smile. And it's like the only time we honk our horns is if we're like telling you to go first. And that's about <laughs> it. That's right. The, uh, so you uh, you decided to go guard instead of active duty or? Yeah, so my original scholarship was um, was as guaranteed uh, GFRD, guaranteed Federal Reserve, something like that. But um, it basically guaranteed that I was going to commission into the Kansas National Guard um, because I don't I wanted to have a civilian career. So that's the reason why I didn't choose like active duty army which is like for full-time army. Um, mm-hmm. I love teaching. So I wanted to like have both careers, have my cake and eat it too. Yeah. So, well, there you go. well, I guess that make, I, I guess now that you say that, so you're going to be able to still, you're going to teach in Topeka. Do you- uh, I'm not committed just yet to any school yeah. district. 
Um, and that that's honestly, I did not know that decision was going to be so hard, um, especially being in the field of mathematics. Uh, that's a dire need field for every district right now. So it's like you're getting so many districts uh, coming at you, offering this, offering that. And it's like, how do you make the decision on, you know, what to do? Hopefully it's like, you know, when I made the decision to come to Pitt State, it's just a sunny day and I'm like, okay, yeah, I could be here for a few years. But um, I don't know. I'm going to let my faith uh, take me there. That's good, man. Do you, uh, are you, uh, when do you start the interview process on that? Um, I've already started some interviews, but I know they have like a career fair coming up like February 17th. Uh, Pitt State just uh, showed us, and I'm sure today they're going to tell us a little bit more about interviews and career affairs, but yeah, I've already started like one interview now, but again, I'm not committing to anyone until I see like all my options first. You think you, think you want to leave this area for a while? I mean, Southeast uh, Kansas? Um, I would say probably like, yes, um, only because I'm more of a like medium city type of uh type of guy so it's yeah. like you know pittsburgh is nice if you want to just you know chill here raise a family and you just want like something that's it's not a bad place at all it's beautiful and all that but i'm more so like a topeka sized area lawrence maybe um kansas city and you i'm also chick-fil-a like, don't you is that what everybody just wants chick-fil-a that's why they I don't. Mean, if they brought it here, they were supposed to bring it here <laughs> from the sensors. Hey, I think about moving every day just to find Chick Fil A. <laughs> well, I've seen the Dairy Queen is uh, uh, being built up here, so that's yeah. something to look forward to. Really, <laughs> show. We're gonna see if we can't get some sponsorships out of this now, Brett. We're gonna, if we're gonna be yeah. corporate names like Chipotle, Chick Fil A. <laughs> Put a little Chick-fil-A ad right here. Yeah, whatever. It's yeah. We're not, I mean, we're we're open. So if you're listening, Chick-fil-A. That's right. Um mm-hmm. so I just want the lemonade. <laughs> the lemonade? Mm-hmm. The lemonade is awesome. I'll tell you this much. My kids, my daughter especially, like if you if she like sees this Chick-fil-A from a mile away, it's like before traveling. Dad, we gotta mm-hmm. I'm like, is it really that is it really that different? She's like Dad, of course, Chick-fil-A. Like, it's delicious. Yes, yeah, for sure. I mean, not even that, though. Like, you're in your car, right? And, you know, you're having, like, a crappy day. And then you just drive up to the uh, the first person who's actually standing outside to greet you. It's like, hey, how's your day going? You know, and then you're having a full-on conversation about your day. Oh, it's crappy. Well, welcome to Chick-fil-A. I'm here to make your day better. And it's like, wow, like, I feel so important right now. Right. Then they start brushing your hair and all that. <laughs> maybe we should maybe we should have Chick-fil-A be doing the training for people, you That's know, right. kindness training. I, and also sure. from the logistics, you know, you're talking about logistics. We uh I mean was this? This was like, I don't know, during Christmas break sometime we were over in Joplin, we'd gone uh to Sam's Club or something, and I was and, and so I was like, Well, we'll drive through Chick-fil-A. And it was it was raining outside, it was night. First of all, the logistics that they have figured out, because obviously the dining room still aren't open, but like the way that they're able, like you said, they've got somebody right there with the iPad thing. They're doing the same and they got you go on and then you get the sauces and then you get I mean, all that thing. Well, this day it was raining. Every one of those uh, individuals out there, every one of the employees had on these like interesting, like they were like these bubble suit things. They were like, uh, like these, I can't what they ever called, but they were literally like. They they look like the minions almost in uh, yeah. you know but they were like these like 
they look like almost like a phone booth <laughs> made out of like plastic that like could shield them from the rain, but they still could be on their computer and stuff. Or they're like, and I was like, Chick Fil A has thought of everything. This is uh, they should be distributing the vaccine, maybe. I mean, whoever's the the president of hospitality, definitely run for president because I'll you'll get my vote. That's right. We man. need more kindness right now. We do, we do. Which that's a good transition into, uh, I guess, uh, uh, a specific topic we wanted to to really delve back into with you. And and we're and DeAndre, just so you've got a little bit of a context, we've been we've been doing a a, a, a series of of kind of uh, discussions revisiting 2020 with with people who in some ways what we would say like really made 2020 and and really helped to lead us through 2020 uh helped to impact 2020 and 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 you're number one an individual that is that for uh, here in Pitt state and in pittsburgh and in southeast kansas frankly impact wise but then also you represent a much broader uh demographic of young uh folks who who are really making a difference and, and i think probably give brett and i and i think a lot of people hope uh, for the future of uh, saving this country and, and making it uh, recommitting to our values that that are the most important. So uh, we wanted to have a conversation with you about 2020 and then about 2021 and beyond and 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 uh, how your experiences in 2020 impacted all that. So, um, Brad, I don't know if you want to start or you want me to. Um, yeah, I'll dive in. Uh, I guess just to as you look back at 2020 and all the things that we went through from the COVID-19 and then also with Black Lives Matter and the social justice issues and the election and all just I feel like a one thing after another. Um, what are your reflections on last year and, and how do you think about it in terms of how we go forward? Well, this is a, a long answer, so get ready, okay? Because 2020, if there was one year to write down in your history books, your personal history books, it was 2020. Um, Starting off just with, you know, being a regular, I like to say, you know, back when things were regular, well, my regular, um, when we could all socialize, you know, you can go to Walmart and we didn't have to wear masks and things like that. Back when things were just casual um, and then coming into, all right, there's this um, deadly uh, virus out there that's starting to affect people's, you know, smell and it's deadlier than the flu and just really like something completely different that I've never experienced in my lifetime. Um, that initial feeling was like, is it, is it time? Is it time to get in, get in my spaceship and blast off to Mars? Um, I didn't think that Mars was ready just yet, but um, when that first happened, you know, I'm pretty sure everyone was just about scared as I was, um, just because this is something that we've never experienced. And I'm only 22 years old. Um, and then as the year was progressing and, you know, the school year had ended for me going into the summer, you know, we went through different phases. Um, I know a lot of people, including myself, you know, you go through the, the quarantine phases of, you know, first being uh, isolated and depressed. And when that comes, then you gain a little weight. And then when that comes, then you try to think of things to like entertain your time and things like that. And, you know, I decided to do something a little bit different during the summer, as you all noticed. And I decided to take that time of isolation to like really focus on learning as much about myself as possible. Because one thing that quarantine had uh, taught me was that up until that time, I really 
honestly did not know anything about myself. And I say that in a, in a sense of, you know, I, I was so focused on being future oriented. You know, everything I did today wasn't for today. It was for next week. It was for tomorrow. And, you know, that's a great mindset to have, but it can also be a burden on you because you don't live in the moment. And during quarantine, I had to take the time to reflect, like, all the things that I've done up until that point, I've never really enjoyed them in the moment. I enjoyed them afterwards, after I had time to reflect and really see, like, what exactly it was that I did, you know, like becoming the Black Student Association president or even attending a university, uh, being the first person in my family to do that. I've never really enjoyed that you know, that statement, because it's like, I'm just here to graduate. I'm not really here to party and do all that. So I decided during quarantine to like, live exactly day by day, and make sure that each day was impactful. Um, starting with the BLM uh, movement that had really began to take off right then. Um, I noticed that there's, you know, after seeing all the protests and things like that, on TV, and not only that, but just hearing the stories. Um, I just remember literally the day that um, Ahmaud Aubrey had um, been murdered. Um, I was literally running that same day. And um, afterwards we had the uh, run with Ahmaud challenge that a lot of people did on Facebook where they ran the exact same miles that Ahmaud had run. And, um, and hopefully I'm saying the correct name, but, um, I was running that and I just, it was my first time running and being fearful of like my life being taken in a sense of like, of course, I've always known that, you know, people could, you know, be there unsuspecting and things like that. But to actually see one of my nightmares come true, to actually see that happen with someone else's life, it like put things in a direct perspective, like this thing can actually happen to you. So that's when I really took the time to come back to Pittsburgh and join the um, BLM efforts here uh, in protest to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, they had already created their own kind of group chat uh, led by Mrs. Um, I'm not gonna remember her name just quite yet, but I know there was a lot of uh, community leaders there. And I just decided to join in with my fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha and ask them, is there any way that I can help? And after like, Talking to everyone, you know, we all had like different perspectives. You know, you had some people who were more um, left wing, like not so extreme, but very left wing. You had some people who were kind of moderate, some people who were like, you know, I'm a Republican, but, you know, I understand what's happening. I want to help. And I kind of stood in the moderate kind of position. Um, I like to understand all perspectives. Um, but I still have my own opinion at the same time. And I think that's what really made them want to like push me in the forefront was that <clears throat> I was not only the Black Student Association president, but I was kind of like the balancer type of person. And I heard everyone out um, when they had their differing opinions. So moving forward, I really took 2020 as an opportunity to uh, be vulnerable, which is something that I really suck at doing. Um, many of y'all wouldn't have guessed that, but vulnerability is something that makes me so uncomfortable because I've always thought vulnerability was weakness and it's not. 
vulnerability and courage work hand to hand. You can't have one without the other. And um, when they gave me the opportunity to lead the protest, um, it was empowering. And after that, I've not, I haven't stopped that momentum. I chose uh, quarantining in 2020 as an opportunity to um, talk to uh, high school students, seniors about going to college um, through different uh, districts such as Topeka 501 and others. And I've increased my volunteerism in terms of serving at the rescue missions and things like that. I just wanted to ensure that in 2020, although you know things didn't look the way I wanted them to look, I, could, I still had an opportunity to make things better because I'm very, I'm an optimistic person and I look forward to the next day. Even if there's no sunshine, I know that the next day is just gonna be just as great if not better because I gave myself permission to be happy. So I gave myself permission to be happy in 2020 regardless of what's happening and I was ultimately. Um, you said you're 22 years old? Yes. Uh, I mean, the fact that you've gotten this, <laughs> this depth of, of, uh, of perspective at 22, uh, I can't wait to be talking to you when you're 42 and you'll probably be governing. Yeah. Um, you, uh, this is, you've, uh, you're, you're way, you're mature beyond your years for sure. I think in your way of being able to put this in perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I was struck by something that when you mentioned the thing about vulnerability and, you know, um, you know, I think about, oh, let's say like cultural, the cultural differences that might exist within, within communities, whether that's their Midwestern, Southern, big city, small city, but then we also do recognize there are some cultural differences within uh, racial communities too, right? So, um, and I think that uh, as someone, as a, as a, as a, a child of the nineties myself, you know, growing up, like listening to nineties hip hop and, you know, West coast, East coast and gangster rap, you know, like, I, I, and you might say like, what were you doing listening to that, this white boy in liberal Missouri, but <clears throat> I was always trying to live on the, on the edge, I guess a little bit DeAndre, but <laughs> in a safe way. Right. I'm just, right. but, but, uh, you know, what I would say that I think is a hallmark and many people would point out within like, and I'm using hip hop as an example for cultural expression, right? Is that you would say like, there's a lot of violence and a lot of misogyny and not vulnerability, right? The opposite of that. And so if you don't mind us delving into that for a minute, do you think that, yeah. that there's a, do you think that there is a, a bias against vulnerability for particularly African-American males, even within the black community itself? Um, absolutely. And I say that because, you know, um, within my community, I can only speak from my experiences. Of course, many African-Americans had different experiences, but this is what I co collected from my peers who are also African-American and just my experiences. But we, we don't like being vulnerable. Um, you know, we grow up thinking that vul uh, being vulnerable is a, is a weakness. Like the definition is like, a weakness and a barrier or barricade um, that enemies or anything on the outside can infiltrate. So vulnerability isn't something that we want. We want to build up the wall, right? The wall with bricks that we put up, the bricks are made of different issues that we've came into contact with. So one brick could be trust issues. The next brick could be trauma. The next brick could be, um, you know, rape, things like that, just bricks that we've experienced that we don't ever want happen, 
happening again. So we built up this huge wall around ourselves. But something that awesome that I learned and I want to share it to anyone out there is that instead of building a wall of bricks, I understand that you want to isolate yourself, but you should build a fence. You build a fence instead of a wall of bricks because with the wall of bricks, let's say I want you to visualize, you know, you're sitting on your porch, right? And you build up this wall of bricks. You're not able to see that tornado that's coming at all. Because again, you chose to build up this wall. You chose to isolate yourself because you're hurt and you just want to heal. But you're not able to see the storms that are coming. So instead of a wall, you need to build up that fence. Because again, you're isolating yourself. But guess what? You can see what's coming your way. And you can better prepare yourself for next time. We're thinking like a chain link fence imagery, right? Like <laughs> Something like that. Not a privacy fence, maybe. It's a <laughs> the one that you can see through, yeah. Won't really help. But um. And I think of that fence as vulnerability, as courage, um, instead of the wall, which is like avoidance behavior and things like that. Vulnerability is our way of expressing exactly what it is that we feel. Um, and the reason why people don't want to be vulnerable sometimes, or at least myself, is because, A, you feel like nobody really cares about your opinion. You feel like nobody is really gonna listen or that it won't change, you know, their actions moving forward. You get so tired of talking over and over. You get so tired of saying something and no one's listening. You, you get so tired of opening your heart just for people to just let it sit out there to dry. So it's like, all right, I'm gonna close myself off, no more vulnerability, but then you stop your growth when you do that. And if you stop your growth, you're gonna stay exact in that you're going to stay in that exact same position of hurt you're never going to be able to heal past that man i think you should be hosting these shows let's <laughs> uh, just say uh, no, uh take a lot of notes here i know seriously this is uh uh just to remind everyone listening this is a 22 year old talking uh <laughs> but uh no i you know something that struck me as you're as you're talking about that i mean is you know, obviously, the over the last four years, the the building of a of a wall, physical wall, right, was a political tool, right. I mean, it was a it was a rallying cry for a certain segment, right. I mean, if you think about the Trump's um, uh, movement and the Make America Great movement, I mean, it started with talking about a wall, right. And, and it's even ending. You know, the the although uh, uh, prudentially, I think that uh, the people were not seeing the videos of him constantly any longer, but but uh, he, one of his last acts as president was to go down and sign or autograph a piece of the wall that was built during his, right? And so I, I think there's an interesting, you know, using, using that analogy, I think is interesting because, uh, you know, I, I have a sense that it's possible that we want to avoid vulnerability also out of a root, there's a fear, right? You're, ta you're essentially talking about fear there whether that's fear of being made to look weak or fear of being hurt or fear of any of those kinds of things. It's a similar thing. I think that, and fear is never uh, definitely not a good um, impulse to determine public policy. It's not a good, it's not a good impulse from which to determine how to treat one another. It's, it's usually the worst one that we can use uh, because it usually results in building up actual walls or metaphysical walls or metaphorical walls or violence or any of those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, I can't help but think as I, as you we were talking about that, about how much of that same sim sentiment of fear was being exploited over the last four years 
by those who were saying we need to build a wall. Well, why did they say we need to build a wall? We need to build a wall because you have, they were, you know, the allegation was you have uh, Mexican folks coming over and they're a threat to you. Well, there's some serious question, you know, whether that's the case, but that person already had a fear and it right. was exploited by someone who took advantage of that. And uh, I think that is an interesting thing that you would talk about that wall versus a fence and all of that. Um, and then maybe even versus a bridge, right? You can use all right. that. And something that, you know, I find, you know, the parallelisms between, you know, my metaphor and the, the literal political wall is that, you know, once again, that fence is for security, though. That fence, the metaphorical fence you build is for security as well. So back in the day, you know, at our border, we, we had a literal fence that you could like see. I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but there were places that they had like a seesaw yeah. that kids on the side of Mexico can sit on. The kids on the side of U.S. can actually sit on and like uh, play on. And I've never been to the literal border, so I can't talk too much on it. But I will say that instead of like exploiting, exploiting that fear of, you know, the gangsters and the rapists is, is from Mexico are coming over here. I just wish that we would have taken the opportunity to talk to the Mexican government and see what what bridges can we build? What united efforts can we make in order to weed out the bad people on both sides? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, U.S. isn't just full of patriots and just awesome people. We have just as many bad people as Mexico does. But again, our, our country is great and I love the U.S. with all my heart. But I think that we, we lie to ourselves sometimes thinking that this country is perfect. And I, I don't want to get too political, but I will say one thing. The only thing I really disliked about the comment of make America great again is that from a leadership perspective, leaders don't ever look backwards. Leaders don't stay stuck in the past. Leaders are the ones who look forward and sees the potential that we have in becoming great. So, you know, if you would have changed it to something that was more future oriented, then maybe I would have had time to actually try to understand it. But it's like, you can't say make it great again, because America is a country. The, the reason why America is so awesome is because we're always looking to get better. We know that we're not perfect, but we're looking for the opportunities to get better, to right our wrongs or fix our wrongs and make it a country where we get closer to that goal of becoming all men and women are equal type of thing. So well, you think about it, the, the words, the words in the constant preamble are in order to, in order to make it create a more perfect union, right. you know, more perfect is actually, and, and, it's, and that's interesting because even from the beginning you had scholars and you look back and they say like, okay, more perfect is, is clearly not grammatically correct. It's not, mm. but it is that they were trying to, uh, I very much believe uh, really get to the essence of what you're talking about, which is that we recognize that as humans on this side, we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to have this hundred percent, right. We have to leave it open-ended based on certain fundamental principles about equality and justice for all and rule of the law, rule of law. And these like very basic sort of things, but to say like, but toward a more perfect future that, that those, even those guys uh, who were, who were writing that didn't have any idea what that, future would look like but I think they they inherently knew they needed to leave it open to future generations have got to figure out how to evolve this thing uh, and I think that's that's something that I but again the challenge there this goes back to the fear thing DeAndre I think that it's it's easy to be afraid of the future especially if 
Oh, if yeah. you're pre especially if your present circumstances aren't great or, or you've had, and, and I think, you know, one of the things, uh, and I, and I, the last time we had the conversation, I tried to get us in this way and this place and we didn't really ever get delve into it deeply, but, you know, I think there's a lot more similarities between, uh, poor white communities and poor black communities than probably either one of them recognize or want to recognize or whatever it is, you know, growing up in a, in a socioeconomically depressed rural area in Missouri, uh, and looking around me, and I look back now at a lot of people around me that, that they didn't have options or didn't feel like they had options to go to college or uh, or those sorts of things, similar to what the, the kid in the, the African-American kid in inner city Detroit might feel. And, and I'm not saying that their impediments are equivalent. I mean, that's in some ways, that's neither here nor there. I mean, the point is, like, you have groups of folks who look around, and they think, like, what hope is there? Like, I don't have people going to college around me. I don't have people having good jobs around me. I don't have, and then you get resentful because that's a reaction to fear. You get angry. That's a reaction to fear. Um, and, and, you know, so often I wonder like, how could we, how could we figure out how the person in Appalachia can realize, Hey, you know what? Your situation is dire. And so is the kid in Detroit and, and they're similar and you guys should be together on this actually, yes. you know, as opposed to thinking of each other as enemies. I mean, one of my favorite, not favorite, but one of my first like thoughts when you bring up this is poverty should be categorized as a mental health issue, period. It should no longer be a class issue. It should no longer be a, um, a title that you just give people to. Poverty is a mental health issue. And I say that because there's so many things that come with poverty. Um, me personally, I. I mean, I could lay my, my story out on the line for you all, the youngest of seven siblings. Um, all my siblings are from Chicago. I'm the only one born and raised in Kansas, literally out of my whole family. And my family's gigantic. Um, so culturally, I'm a little bit different um, because I'm the youngest and you know they were actually raised there. So it was like coming here and going to uh, Topeka, Kansas where I, I like to say my high school was one third black, one third white, and one third Hispanic. But of course, we had other races there. But that just goes to show you that we weren't a, a school of just minorities. We were a school of people who were in poverty. And that almost, in a sense, united us. That almost, in a sense, um, allowed us to understand the perspectives of each other. Uh, my best friend, Harley, um, me and him in high school, we were two um, academic focused guys. He was white, I was black. And, um, well, am, yeah. But um, we yes. always somewhat kind of like cheat off of each other, not really, but help each other with assignments. That's what I'm gonna say. Help <laughs> each other with assignments. And um, he got valedictorian and I got ranked number three or four in my class. But um, I never really looked at his race so specifically like that. And that's because of my personal experiences. Growing here in Kansas, I've never really had the, the experience of being called the N-word in, in person, like to my face. You know, through games or whatever, okay, ow, that's not really going to hurt me. But in other places like um, Detroit or like Missouri, um, people have experienced, and even here in Kansas, people have experienced direct racism. Um, I'm fortunate enough to say I have that. But um, back to your point in poverty, um, I definitely 
wish that we would categorize it as a mental health issue so that way we would be more focused on changing the system. Um, there's something wrong in our system because you see how we're able to unite together, especially this year. Um, I did my research from the US Census from 2019 and I did not know these numbers were so small, but the US is made up of about 65% Caucasian or white people um, that it reported on the census. And about, I think it was 11 to 13% were African-American. I had no idea that African-Americans made up such a small percentage of this country. I thought it was a little bit bigger. Um, maybe you could say I was a little bit biased growing up in minority communities, but um, I did not know the numbers were so heavily like shifted. So it's like the idea that we're such a small percentage of people, but yet we make up the bigger percentage of people in poverty or the majority of us are in poverty um, is unfortunate. But I definitely think that we can come together as people who are in this thing called poverty, who have this um, health crisis of poverty, we can come together and relate on that issue and try to figure out solutions. Um, I think our governors should actually move to these impoverished communities. Um, and actually, if you sit down and you live there, you're actually able to find the solutions versus being somewhere else and saying, all right, bring somebody in to uh, tell me about it. You know, I don't know. I'm not a governor. <laughs> you probably will be. Yeah, yeah not yet. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to ask because, you know, there has last year and, and it continues to be um, let me start over. Last year, obviously, there was a lot of emphasis put on social justice, um, a lot of uh, emphasis put on racial equality. And, and I think if nothing else, we discovered we still have a pretty decent problem when, mm -hmm. between the races and the way people view each other. And I, I'm just curious, um, as you look back, what do you think um, was accomplished where do you do you think we're in a better place now? Do you think we've made any progress over the last year, eight months? Um, I think a lot of things are accomplished, and I'm a little biased because I'm optimistic. But I, one thing I will give uh, President Trump credit on is that he definitely brought out a lot of things that were hidden in America that we just we kind of got comfortable around and we kind of accepted the fact. And he allowed those things through, I don't know how I'm not gonna directly blame him for anything because these were always problems. But for some reason during this presidency, they definitely heightened. I mean, to have the BLM movement happen in all 50 states is something historical that you cannot say um, just happened out of nothing. You know, there were contributors to that. But I think that we, what was accomplished this year was the idea that I brought up those statistics earlier about the small percentage of African-Americans in America and Hispanics um, were just, I think they're around the same percentage. They were, I think they're a little bit higher actually, but um, the fact that my community has not engaged in the voting um, efforts as much as we have in, in the older days when we first got the right to vote, um, and then now coming together as a united effort and being able to really 
affect the outcome of this election, I think that really empowered us. That really showed us that we have a lot more power than I think we we think that we have. Um, and I say that in a respectful sense of, I understand there always have been people who have pushed this voting effort, but this was like really the first time, and I think anybody can agree, that we've seen voting efforts as strong. Um, I've never seen people marching in the street telling each other to go out and vote. I've never seen people sit at the voting booths um, just asking people if they're registered. You go to a social club and people are talking about voting. You go to uh, the restaurant, people are talking about different politicians and things like that. So people are really starting to engage in their government. They're starting to actually see, you know what? I matter, my voice matters, and they're gonna listen to me because I contribute to this country just as much as anyone else. And you should feel that way. You should definitely feel that way, you know, being a citizen of the United States. Uh, being a contributor towards the United States. Um, so the unity is one thing that I think we accomplished, but at the same time, I don't think that we're done. I know we're not done actually, because we still have to see results. Although we got, you know, I don't say we, but other people may have gotten the president that they wanted, um, the outcome that they wanted from the elections. That doesn't mean that we're not gonna hold this next president accountable. That doesn't mean that we're not gonna tell them like, all right, here are the things you promised, now show us results. Because it's not enough just to talk to talk, you gotta actually walk to walk. And guess what? We're gonna hold you just as accountable as the people who didn't vote for you are gonna hold you accountable. Um, we need to see results, we need to see change. And last point I'm gonna make on this is that this is my first time actually, um, <clears throat> I went to a class here in Pitt State and um, what class was that? I'm trying to think of a specific, I think it was, uh, oh, it was my education psychology class, right? And um, typically teachers stray away from being political because, um, you know, it's an iffy area, you got students from different political backgrounds, yada, yada, yada. But um, my teacher was talking about poverty and he was bringing up um, ACT scores and, you know, just, he was talking about systemic racism. And then he brought up a very important uh, issue of like how African-Americans make up the smaller percentage of the US, but they account for 50% of inmates on death row, account for about 40% of the uh, people in prison systems and things like that. So, you know, why are these unbalanced? And then he made this last point was, and that's why you gotta understand why people say black lives matter. And I think that was my first time ever having someone who was in a higher position, um, educator's position or whatever, actually advocate for me. And do you, like, there's an unspoken happiness um, that you feel when people are in a room advocating for you. And, you know, they're not even talking to you directly. They're not even looking at you saying, you know, trying to win over points or whatever. They're talking to the people who don't understand because they genuinely want them to understand why this is an issue. And the fact that we have more people doing this now is something that we have to be thankful for, something that we have to acknowledge, but also something we have to continue. Black Lives Matter, um, didn't, Black Lives didn't just matter in 2020 just because we had President Trump and a lot of race issues. 
Black Lives Matter, even in the future. So, um, yeah. Well, I want to pick up on that that last piece because I think that's a really important thing that I think as we're moving forward in 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 genuine dialogue, hopefully increasing depth of dialogue in this country. You know, that's like sincerely wanting the, the willing the good of everyone, right? Not just yourselves, right? Me, you, whoever, right? Is is that you know when you I want I want to I want to hover here on the Black Lives Matter on BLM because my suspicion is that when you talk about it, it's the same way that I might be drawn toward it. It has nothing to do with a specific organization called Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, and there are a lot of folks who who those on the side who want to undermine either intentionally undermine or because of their ignorance uh, the movement. Right. They do it by by attacking the Black Lives Matter organization, which started long before 2020. And, 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 and I think it's probably, I would say in all transparency and fairness, we should acknowledge that there are probably people within that organization, the organization of Black Lives Matter that started years ago, that might be some of the things the critics want to say, right? Like politically, there probably were some Marxists, there probably were some, you know, these sorts of things. But when you talk about Black Lives Matter, or when you say that that professor saying that it had nothing to do with your uh, organizational membership, it had to do with a sentiment, right? And that's why I always address it as the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I use my words very carefully and very specifically. Um, I So after the protest, after the summer had ended, um, I was still president of uh, the Black Student Association here at Pittsburgh State. And we decided to carry the conversation to the campus by having our story on repeat uh, panel in which we gathered people from the community. We had um, the two officers from the uh, Pittsburgh Police Department, officer and a detective, um, that same educational psychology professor that I mentioned, uh, myself and uh, my frat brother, just because he had a community um, insight and a different insight than I had um, to come up and actually talk about all these issues. And one point that we made was that the issue with a lot of people in BLM is that we use different definitions, which I think you were alluding to, Sean. Um, we, me and you, think of Black Lives Matter as a movement. Can I say that? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a movement for justice. It's a movement. Right. For, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas other people may think of it as the organization. And we got to understand within all organizations, within all parties, I mean, if we want to get into politics, we can talk about how the KKK was started literally in our government system. So it's like, you can't talk about any type of organization or anything out there where you don't have your radicals. You don't have the, the small, small percentage of people um, that are out there doing things that are within their own ideals, that are against what the majority of people think or agree like. And the one point I wanna hit on is that um, people who said, you know, we can't say black lives matter because you know all lives matter white lives matter green lives matter blue all that good stuff which is so beautiful right um that's fine you know it's fine that you that you're standing up for that that white person who was unarmed and killed by a cop so if you say all lives matter why aren't you here at my black lives matter protest and standing with me and advocating for your people as well. 
I've never heard somebody on the All Lives Matter side say the white person's name or have a poster with a white person who was killed um, unjust, you know, by a cop. I've never seen that. I don't even know one name. And you can say that's my ignorance, maybe. Um, don't, but, don't you, that goes back to something we talked about on our last time we chatted was, I don't necessarily think white people feel this sense of community to each other like like black people or other minorities and women even you know I, I think I think sometimes this is actually where we go off or go wrong a little bit is that I I mean it's a fine line because you don't want to get too you don't want to feel too much of a community of white people but I don't think we have that sense of togetherness that right and I think you see it not just with white people talking about white people but a lot of times Pete talking about anyone else. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're more individual than community-based. Well, and, right. and actually, and I want, that's a good, I'm glad Brett brought that up because that's also important, DeAndre, I, I think for, for you, to, I don't want to start to cut in, but I, I think just to add to it is to say like, you know, does this maybe in some ways go to this issue of, is the right way if we're seeking justice, is the right way for us to be seeking justice, thinking about specific um, identity of race versus just saying, man, like when, like it is a, it is an anti-life thing. It is a, is a, it is a, it is a threat to justice for, you know, my black American brother to be unjustly killed by a police officer, the same as it is for our black American brothers, uh, for the white American brother, right? Like the point is, is that like any, any misuse of power and, and, and violence against any American, citizen white black whatever like it's a it's it's a, it's it's against all of us and right. we should embrace it in that way to your point of like hey we should all be marching together and that's why it's ironic that a lot of these folks who were saying blue lives matter were the ones that just killed a police officer right. the capitol building you know right and i promise you there's no person within blm that thinks that oh that cop should have died think we don't hate cops it's not a Again, I always say this because it's so important and I wish people would understand this. It's not a us versus you type of issue. It's not a me versus you issue. It's not even about you, all right? It's a us versus the issue, the issue of police brutality, the issue of systemic racism. It's us versus the issue, not us versus you. Why are we battling with each other if it affects both of us? And it does. It does affect both of us because just as much as a, a power hungry officer and, th- and let me say this real quick the majority of officers are awesome people the majority of, awesome, of officers made an oath to serve their communities to defend the constitution things like that the majority of officers are law abiding citizens however you, just like any organization you do have your radicals and unfortunately those radicals within the organization in the past have been able to get away with things, you know, if you have officers that literally have killed five people, you know, even if it's, you know, in self-defense, that's something traumatic. People don't just live this uh, this life, you know, saying that they've killed somebody. That's not something that, you know, A, you should be proud of. That's not something that B, that you should, people should think that you should be able to function like a normal human. That's not something normal. Humans today have evolved to where we don't kill each other anymore. Like back in the old days, you know, before Christ, uh, we don't we don't think like that. So even when officers have to kill people in self-defense, I think that they should be evaluated. 
I think that they should have time off to really decompress and like think about that situation. But back to your point, because I'm kind of spider webbing. Um, it's good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I just I just want us to unite. I do. You know, we do have to talk about Black Lives specifically because of the uh, statistics that we the statistics showed us that we did not matter. The statistics showed that. So that's why we have to be out there marching, saying that we matter, too, because if, if the statistics aren't showing it, then y'all aren't listening. Nobody really cares at this point. We're just letting it happen, basically. Well, and I, I think you made a, a really important point earlier, too, about the, uh, the, the role of poverty and how we're talking about that. You know, I don't have these statistics in front of me, but my guess would be I think it's probably a relatively educated guess and it's probably not a crazy hypothesis that most of the white people who are victims of police brutality share something in common with most of the black people who are victims of police brutality. And that it, my guess is, is that they are all poor for the most poverty. part. Poverty yeah. probably is probably, poverty probably is a, is a pretty significant indicator of the chance or, or it's correlated with the chances of you being brutalized by the police. Uh, I'm guessing that's a lot of, what's that? Because you don't have the access to education. Um, and that's not just me being a teacher, but to have knowledge is so powerful. And like, we've heard that growing up, but I don't think people really understand. When you, like the people who marched, <clears throat> the, the, the rioters who destroyed our nation's capital, um, they had the knowledge to know like what the, the officer's limits were. They, and they had the, the carelessness to actually not really care um, to, to storm. They had the privilege of not worrying about the idea of them, um, the officers there, uh, killing them. Even when one person died, they still stayed there hours after. So it's like to have the knowledge or the whereabouts or even the, the to, to know your worth in a sense um, is very empowering. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, people in poverty should take their example. No, that was a terrible example. But people in poverty need the access to education. People in poverty need the, the, the confidence to know their self-worth. And I think that that's something that we're definitely lacking. That's something that we don't build enough within them. And we can't just prepare them like, you know, they have all that support from the kindergarten K through 12, but we need to create systems even after they graduate high school. What about that student that decides not to go to college? We don't have anything in place for that student, that, that contributor to the U.S. We have nothing in place for that. It's either they go to Walmart and work, they do this and that, which is okay, but we need to keep a system in place to make sure they don't deter off and become people who tear down this country you know well and to your, and to your point about the education it's you know you're talking earlier about this notion of the it is heartening to see more people that have previously felt like they couldn't engage or shouldn't engage in the electoral pol politics right that they, they couldn't their vote didn't matter or those sort of things there is also an important thing that we, we talk a lot about the right to vote we don't talk as much about the duty to be and responsibility to be educated if you are going to vote you know, like, and being informed. And I think that what you're talking about, though, that's one of the reasons why public education systems were set up and to begin with was to say, we have to have an educated citizenry. If that citizenry is going to be one that's helping us to make decisions about how we're going to run this government, they need to be educated. They need to be informed. Right. Um, 
and so the fact that you have large swaths of the population, unfortunately, that's a lot of times brown and black, that don't have access to the same educational uh, standards that you do in white communities, it puts those individuals who now are trying to get go vote at a disadvantage on how they would even understand how to do it or what it means or, or any of those sorts of things. And there's similar issues in poor white communities too. Um, but the truth is, is if we're just going to be completely direct about it, there are politicians who really do uh, benefit off of the ignorance of individuals, right? And they Absolutely. exploit that. Yeah, and just seeing that, uh, you could tell because during the you know uh, voting season, I mean, look at these commercials. I mean, they must really think that we are dumb. They must really have low expectations for us because you know you see commercials of them just making these outrageous you know accusations against each other as if we don't have the the power of the internet to actually research but the issue is that people in poverty don't have that power um a lot of them don't even have internet so it's like you know when they see commercials like that that's the only information they're getting that's the only time they're hearing these politicians names honestly so it's like we need to give them the same access to wealth to education so that way we can really fill in this gap um, it's not an issue I can blame on anyone. It's the issue that we just need to fix. What are your thoughts about the year ahead? Uh, whether, whether it comes to our country or any particular issue, just as you look ahead, how are you feeling? Um, honestly, 2021 is definitely hopeful. Um, I really, this is interesting. I see 2021 being a year of, uh, and I hate to look backwards, but you know, back in the day when everyone used to just be outside and be social and like, you know, places were just really packed and, you know, sports was just like sports in high school, like everyone were there and like everyone participated. I really see something like that happening again, because again, quarantine taught us that we took for granted the opportunity to live in the moment. We took for granted the opportunity to just live, um, period. So it's like when things, when things start to, um, I don't want to say look normal. I want to change that. When things start to get better um, and look different, um, I think that we're going to start seeing more people engage in society. Um, I hope that quarantine didn't make people, didn't change our way of socializing. I hope that quarantine, after quarantine's over, um, people aren't gonna stay in their houses. I really hope so, because I think that that's gonna be another crisis that we're gonna have to address, which is, you know, household obesity, um, uh, abuse of substances, of uh, uh, mental, physical abuse, things like that have risen since quarantine. So 2020, I definitely see it as a, a step up, like things are gonna get better, but that doesn't mean we're not gonna have low days. I mean, any year is going to be, is going to have your days of, you know, not being so good, but, you know, I'm hopeful. I know our future is bright and, you know, being in this school um, with the kids that are, you know, coming to, um, to school um, that aren't quarantined or doing the hybrid courses and just teaching them, oh, uh, just know our future is bright, y'all. These kids are so smart. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice because we underestimate them. We underestimate the way that they can think. We try to hide things from them, not knowing that they see everything. And these kids are just, I mean, just think about it. Kids uh, during 2020 were able to get on TikTok 
and literally stop one of President Trump's rallies. Not stop it, but book all the tickets for it and then make it practically empty. Kids on TikTok, do you not know how powerful that is? And these are the same kids that are gonna lead our future generations. That's something to get excited about because number one, they, they're starting to learn to um, know their uh, worth. They're starting to know their impact. They're starting to know their uh, power. And I think that if we keep on molding that generation and teach them how to use that responsibly, uh, the, the future is going to be powerful. It's going to be beautiful. We actually, to be honest, I think both Brett and I are pretty great because we started the morning out with this conversation with DeAndre. And I think I could talk to that, that young man for hours. He is... Uh, He's an impressive young man. Yeah, he really is. I think he's pretty excited about his student teaching this this semester. That's what he said. Yeah, he said, "Man, anyway, that's a mature twenty-two year old." Yeah. Yes. All right. Yes, he is. Well, Dietra, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I just finished a Zoom with. I was the, one of the panelists for the Cerner Corporation in Kansas City. Okay. Their Martin Luther King Jr. Um, day of service. So oh. it was a great conversation. It was a great panel. So was the, uh, was it, uh, were you the only speaker on the panel or was it a panel like a multiple folks? There, there were four of us on the panel. There were some business owners, some community, um, organizers, civic, you know, organizers on there. Um, one pastor of a Presbyterian church. So yeah, it was, it was a good group. Right. And just so you know, I, I went ahead and started recording because we've realized Brett and I that uh, <laughs> sometimes we don't, we just like tend to jump right in and it's right. nice to have a little bit of a conversation uh, about things other than, okay, now let's talk about something serious, you know? Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's great. I, I, uh, um, did you feel like there was a good response from the employees that were part of that? Well, it, today was a pre-recording. They have 25,000 employees that are both U.S. and abroad. So we pre-recorded it today, and then it will air on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday um, around the world, which, of course, different time zones. So they'll be able to click onto it and watch it, you know, at their leisure. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it, it went well. And and you know, I'm I'm sure that out of twenty five thousand, I don't know, who knows how many will click on it and actually watch it. But hopefully, this is their second year doing it, and they seem to have a really good response. Last year, of course, it was in person, so this is the first year that it was recorded. So we'll just have to, you know, roll the dice and see what they get. But it was still fun to do it. Great, that's great. So you're settling in to the new the new role. I am. I am. I'm settling in and it, it's been a, a fun um, few months of learning and just kind of reorganizing and and figuring things out. You know how it is. You just are just kind of taking baby steps along the way. Good. Yeah. Um, well, and that's obviously the first time. I mean, I guess You've, you've obviously been serving in the capacity of focusing on diversity issues within the campus, but this is a, a new thing in the sense of elevating that 
to a, to a more appropriate level of scope and uh, leadership. Uh, and so uh, you're also kind of trailblazing in that regard, right? You're, 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 uh, and as someone who has had the good fortune of basically being able to create my positions as I went so far, uh, it's, I understand how that is. And I understand the privilege of that, but also the, the level of responsibility and, and pressure there is on creating something that, you know, doing something different that's never been done within the organization. So uh, how are you feeling about that? Oh, you know, some days better than others, to be honest with you. You can tell that the, the perception, it just depends on what group I'm navigating that day, how I'm received and how the information that I may be sharing is received. You know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, Sean and Brett, mm-hmm. um, in that some people feel like, why do we need to do this? And while others seem to be somewhat more um, open, somewhat more appreciative of the work in DEI, certainly we have a long way to go, um, even in regards to our own campus, our own community, the nation, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, And I think that sometimes people operate with blinders on. And when I say blinders, what I mean by that is it doesn't affect me, so I don't need to worry about it. But, you know, as I just said a little bit ago on the panel I was on, all of us should be what I would call servant leaders, where we are trying to be better today than we were yesterday. And that happens when we are able to, number one, have conversations like the three of us are having today, just openly and talking about how the world we live in looks different depending on who's looking at it. Well, and you know, I I know we just completed uh, here in the last few months, this um, campus climate study. uh, uh, And I know that the results aren't done yet. I know you have some analysis to do and those sorts of things. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to a time we can probably, you know, do another one of these conversations once we have like a good sense of that. And you've, you've released your, 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 your sense on that. But I guess one is that it's important that we were asking ourselves important questions, it seems. So like this um, campus climate survey, I'm saying it correctly, right? I couldn't remember. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I guess just is your sense after while not because I know we're not you haven't analyzed all of it yet, but uh, even your sense of the way that our campus responded to even being asked to ask itself those questions like what's your assessment of that? I thought we had a really good return rate, um, you know, from our faculty, staff, administration and students. Um, I think the information it's about a 155 page document that we are assessing right now. We just got those results back right as we came back from the break. So we are analyzing it. Um, You know, a quick snapshot. There are things, of course, that we probably expected to know about ourselves. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of surprises, but I also think there's going to be some holes and some gaps in services that we probably knew were there that now we have to decide how are we going to put the resources behind those gaps so that we can all get up to a level um, of success and equity on our campus. And so, yeah, we, we're in the preliminary stages of looking at the document. I plan to bring the council back together in a couple of weeks and they're going to be able to look at it and evaluate it. And we're gonna do some small group work. We've decided to um, 
do some small group work with some students, some faculty, some staff and administration to kind of look at what were the responses of people. And, you know, as I shared with the president, I think the most telling part is the um, narrative. Everyone had an opportunity to kind of write in, you know, some of their own comments besides just answering the questions. And I think it's fascinating to see how people um, answered questions or the comments that they made um, regarding certain areas of the university as it relates to diversity, as it relates to religion, as it relates to um, political views and what their response is to that. And so I think there'll be some interesting information that comes out that we'll be able to work with. I think it's definitely worth doing. Um, you know, a lot of campuses are, are doing campus climate surveys and even within our region system. K-State did it last year. Uh, so now Fort Hayes State is getting ready to institute their climate survey this semester as well. Um, Washburn did one about two years ago. And so I think uh, more and more institutions are gonna be looking at climate surveys, especially given the state of the nation right now and, and what we're all dealing with. And Deidre, I wanna kind of piggyback off that idea of diversity, climate and racial issues as we talk about the state of the nation. We've gone through a year of unprecedented challenges, you know, with COVID, but also uh, Black Lives Matter and the social justice issues. And where, where are we now after 2020? Where are we now? Have, what, have we made progress on some of these issues? I'm only gonna answer for myself. I can't speak for anyone else. Is that fair? Fair enough, yeah. Um, you know, if we would have did this interview a couple of weeks ago, I might've felt like, yes, you know what, Brett, we moved the needle. But after what happened on January 6th, as my mom would say, two steps forward, three steps back. And I actually was on a, a phone call this morning with a colleague from another region institution. You guys know that I travel in. Um, to campus. And so I, I like to use my time wisely. And sometimes I'll do a conference call at 630 in the morning. Hey, you're up. I'm up. Let's get it done. Right. And one of the things that we talked about this morning is a little sense of being nervous about the opening of school next week with the inauguration on the 20th, us opening on the 19th. What will the pulse of our students be in regards to the events of January 6th? And also with the nation really being on high alert that there is a, a chance that there could be another attack, if you will, on not only our nation's capital, but on the capitals of all 50 states. And so I would say that I feel like we have inched along kind of like a caterpillar in a little bit of progress, but then that process, that, that progress was quickly dampened by those events that just took place. Um, and I guess my comment goes further to say, if there are those who feel like the election was stolen from them, it's amazing to me that other Republicans who were also on the ballot in whatever state you want to choose that said that there was any type of corruption, that they held their seat, but the president did not. And so I believe if there was corruption against the Republican party, if you will, then all of those sitting Republicans who were also on the ballot 
would have lost their seat as well to Democrats. And so I think what people don't want to see, again, the rose-colored glasses, you know, not looking, eyelids closed, is that the American people split as we are, um, sent a clear message that enough is enough. And we cannot continue to live the way that we've lived the last four years in fear, um, not knowing what's going to happen to us, not knowing if we're safe, um, not knowing that we could walk into a store and be called something that is out of our name. All of those things have become realities to us. Whereas before, people may have felt those things or thought those things about us. But unfortunately, the president of the United States gave those people the opportunity to say exactly what they want to say to us without any repercussions. And that's the sad part. And so I believe that we haven't made a lot of progress, Brett. And I believe that we still have so much work to do, even as we think about Dr. King and his dream and we think about celebrating his holiday on Monday as a day of service. There are little small communities all around us that are still holding school in the K through 12 sector. They don't recognize, even though it's a federal holiday, there's no mail, the banks aren't open, they're still having school. So what message are they sending to their students about Dr. King and his dream? and about what happened to him, being jailed, some of his um, constituents being beaten to death, but yet they're still holding school on Monday and not recognizing it as a federal holiday. That in itself tells you that we still have work to do. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, I couldn't help but think <clears throat> as I was um, I was sitting here in, in, in my, well, my, my home office and as I'm usually at these days. Um, and I, and I was sitting here and I was on a, I was actually on a zoom. It was one of this, uh, fraud, uh, the, the LaDonna was doing, you know, her, her, uh, mm -hmm. seminars or, or that we have to do the compliance stuff when my, and I knew obviously, you know, given my role and just my interest and my undergraduate degrees in political science, you know, and then, it, so I always still have always had that kind of passion and interest of watching this. So I generally would, but I also, for my work, I'm monitoring what's happening in DC that day, you know, and uh, you know, there was a, a certain level of what I saw as just the worst sort of cynicism that I was had seen in my lifetime with these people who clearly these legislators who clearly knew there was no fraud. They clearly knew there was, it was not stolen, but they were also clearly willing to use as much of the lie right uh, as they could in order to benefit themselves and they're all clamoring to try to get that base of voters that has now been churned up you know over the last four years um and so i already had a level of disappointment right i mean or, or frustration and anger frankly and while i'm on this zoom we're listening about fraud or non-compliance or compliance or whatever and i get a text from my dad that says can you believe that he he, meaning the president, encouraged them to do this. And I hadn't seen what was happening yet because I wasn't watching. And I, and I just responded back to him. Well, okay, I thought he was just talking about that level of crazy that was happening with the objection to the vote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and I respond back to him like, well, at least it'll be over after the day. I then open up CNN on the computer while I'm on, and, and it's, you know, capital breached insurrection. And I'm like, 
and it's almost like the bottom dropped out for a moment. I was like, it, that was the closest I felt to the way I felt on 9-11. And it might even be worse in, in a lot of respects because I thought um, this is as much of an assault on our nation, on what's, the, what's great about our nation, on our principles, on all of those things as those terrorists who flew uh, a building or flew into the Twin Towers. Um, I think we've got to be, and I'm not saying everyone who was at that rally is a terrorist, but I will say there definitely were terrorists there. And there were terrorists who led the breaching of that building. And, um, and so like, that was a very disheartening moment. And I think I had that same sort of sense of like history repeating itself. You, you, you know, like I thought immediately of, you know, Hitler's beer hall poots, you know, when he tried to, when his Hitler tried the first time, you know, and he failed and he goes to prison and then he, and then the burning down of the Reichstag, which was their Capitol building. And I thought, you know, we're not supposed to make those comparisons. I know you're supposed to, you're told like that's too incendiary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you limit your discussion about history in that way, you are doomed to repeat it in the way that we have been. And so I, I guess, do you have any hope that maybe there's a lot of people who see it that starkly now and that maybe there's more people that see it and they're willing to put their feet down and say, we're not going to move on this? Well, I, I think clearly the 10 Republicans who voted yesterday, along with the Democrats for impeachment, I think that's a start. But, you know, um, Sean, you know, you, you talked about 9-11 and that comparison. And I would even challenge you to think that what happened was even worse than 9-11 because it was from our own. You know, it's one thing to be wounded by a stranger or a foreigner. But when it's your own, I think the wound cuts that much deeper. And these are were our own fellow Americans. And then I would even challenge you to even think deeper that if they were black or brown people, which you saw during Black Lives Matter, out for the most part peacefully protesting at our nation's capital and a wall was erected to keep them away from the White House. And if you even think that Trump came out and there were Um, smoke bombs or whatever they were that were shot in the air to push people back, rubber bullets so that he could pose in front of the church with a Bible that, by the way, he held upside down. I don't think he was. Where was that level of security for our white Americans who came there, who chanted, hang Mike Pence, who broke windows, who had people hiding underneath desks, afraid for their lives, texting their family, this might be the last time you hear from me. But if they were black and brown, I guarantee you, they would have been shot on sight, plain and simple. And that is what we call white privilege. The fact that they were able to even get so close, we would have never been able to get that close. If they even heard, that there was any kind of rally that included black and brown people, the troops would have been called in. But once again, we see privilege at its finest. We see one of the people that was arrested from Arizona who claims to only eat organic food being brought into the jail organic food. I can guarantee you that a black or brown person who even needs insulin or any type of medication 
may not have been afforded that same privilege. And that's what we're talking about is equity. We're talking about equality. We're talking about people being treated the same. We're talking about, I don't want you to shoot them, but I don't want you to shoot us either. And I believe that the same care and consideration that we give to our, our white constituents should also be given to us. And I think that everyone knows it. People don't want to say it, but they know good and well that if it would have been a Black Lives Matter rally or any other rally, that we would still be wiping up dead bodies from the Capitol. There would be more than six people who lost their lives in, in that type of insurrection. Teacher, how are we still here in 2021 <clears throat> having these conversations? Why, why do you think we struggle so much with this issue as a nation? I, I think that as long as hate is prevalent, we're gonna always be here. I think as long as people are not empathetic and people are not sympathetic to what has happened over a hundred years ago, we will always be here. Um, it changes one person at a time. It changes one conversation at a time, but really it, it, it's about the heart of man. And I ask people all the time to look within yourselves, look at your heart. And I think the biggest assault right now is our, those who, of us who call ourselves Christians and the Christian faith. And we look at the most segregated day of the week and it's on Sunday when people go into their places of worship. And unfortunately there are pastors, there are leaders who spew hate right across the pulpit. And that's why we're still here in 2021. I think a lot of us had high hopes for 2021. And it's like the madness has just continued. And so I don't, I don't even know. I think the, how do we fix this? One person at a time. That's going to take a very long time. And, you know, and I've said this to people over and over again. We have to have people who don't look like me help with this movement. Because the reality is this, Sean and Brett, you are the majority. You are the ones who can honestly help move this needle. You are the ones that sit in powerful positions that say, hey, we're not doing it like this anymore. This is not acceptable behavior. You have to operate with a conscience. You have to operate with ethics. And I think some people have lost that. And that's why we're still here in 2021. It's a very sad time. I talked to the president the other day and I said, it's a very sad time for our nation, for, for all of us. It, people, we're, people are still very scared, very scared to leave their homes. They're afraid to travel, um, not even just because of COVID, but afraid of what could happen to them on the highways. Now, there was actually an article yesterday. I can't remember what source it was in, but it was talking. It was actually talking about the number of Republican congressmen who have reported that their vote yesterday on the impeachment was influenced by how scared they are uh, because of the phone calls that they're getting, threatening their families, um, uh, you know, uh, with you know people threatening to do terrible things to them, to their families, to those sorts of things. 
And I think, you know, the, the, the challenge that I have with that, because I do, I, on one level, I don't doubt that that's the case. I mean, we know, we hear, we hear the voicemail. I mean, they, they've been, you know, the yeah. voicemails of these folks getting threatened. Now there is that part of me that says, yeah, but man, you helped to create that thing that's now threatening you. And what responsibility do you have? Because it's easy now. It's e after January 6th, right? Mm -hmm. After that insurrection, you know, that attempted insurrection, like it, it is easy to say, oh, we distance ourselves from all of this and to say, oh, that's so different though than what, but that was, that mob showed up there because they were invited to show up there. They were encouraged to show up there. They were, once they showed up there after eight plus weeks of being told lie after lie of this thing being stolen, right? And if you really believed it was stolen, right? If any of us thought that our vote didn't count, like that we put it in the ballot and they changed it. If we really believe that, if we had accepted that, we'd be angry. I'm not justifying what they did at all, but I'm saying like the, the, the responsibility of this lies as much on the leaders as it does on the followers. And uh, they were told that. And then once they got to DC, they were told in a huge rally fight, drop, right. you know, have courage versus these weak people, you know, march down there and show them. Right. Um, and so, you know, there is that thing of like, okay, you know, <laughs> when these folks are re resigning from the cabinet now, it's like, okay, well, that's too much. Like, what about eight weeks of the lie that's being told? And you never thought about resigning then. Or when kids were locked up in cages. Or when, you know, whatever that is. So, like, what level of responsibility? And how do we hold those individuals accountable for, for that, for years of that, you know? True. I wish I had the answer. I think we'd all be millionaires, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, at least we wouldn't have to worry as much for the, about the rioters, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We could go live on an island somewhere. That, that'd be okay. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think about this, even as I think about people jumping ship, I think that, well, in another week or two, they would have lost their job anyway. And I think they know that. And so it's very convenient and it's very easy to say, I resign two weeks before your new boss is coming, who's probably not going to keep you anyway. And so I, I think that was an act of convenience. And I don't, I don't feel anything for those people who left. Um, I, yes, I wish they would have left sooner because I think they've done a lot of harm. Um, but I also think that, you know, I've never worked for a tyrant before. I've never worked for anyone that I've been afraid of. And I honestly believe that there were people who were afraid of our president. If you look at history, you, you know, you said it, you're a political science major you've studied other presidents, you know, right now there's a, a great little docu-series docu on Showtime on, on President Ronald Reagan. I don't know if you've watched it or not. It's a great little series about, um, you know, he may not have been the smartest crayon in the box, but he surrounded himself around very intelligent people, including his own wife, who helped keep him out of a lot of pickles. But I think with our current president, what we found is he wasn't even reading briefings. He wasn't listening to those who were more intelligent than he was. He was really flying by the seat of his pants. And I think that, and it was to the demise of, of the United States. 
There's a there's a great documentary that came out uh, last year. Uh, it's called The Way I See It. It's about uh, Pete Souza, the who was the he was the photographer. Yeah. For uh, most people know him as a photographer for Obama, but he actually was a photographer for Ronald Reagan as well. And uh, and in it and of course this last year he decided to start standing up using his photography right like saying because to try to stand up to the lies to say. Uh, you know what, with all due respect, Mr. President, when you said this about Obama, it's not the case. I have proof that that's not the case, right? Same thing you say about Reagan or about climate change. I mean, all these different things that he would put things out using, you know, an art form, but also professional art form to to combat it. One of the things that I thought was so fascinating and so important for this moment was, you know, it wasn't partisan. It was in the sense of the thing that united to him the way he kind of described the thing that was consistent with both Reagan and Obama is the level of seriousness in which and respect that they held that office. Uh, and, and also an understanding of the impact that you're not just some guy at the bar spouting off what your views are on whatever. Right. <laughs> your, 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 your views matter way more than that. Like if you're in the bar, just saying whatever you want to say, you might make two people mad. You might incite, you know, the person you're talking to, but if you're, but they, but what he was saying was that President Reagan and President Obama both understood the power of that office, the the responsibility of that office to be that character was the most important aspect of that. Because if you didn't act in a certain way, uh, the results could be incredibly dangerous for our country and, and for the moment. Absolutely. Um, Dietrich, earlier you mentioned your concern with how things might be on, on our campus and other campuses across the country, particularly on Inauguration Day, but even beyond as students come back. What, I guess, elaborate a bit on that. How do you feel like the, the events of, of maybe even the past week could influence how the next semester goes here? Well, you know, um, on Tuesday, because today's Thursday. I have to get my days right. I'm like a little baby or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I participated in a in a Zoom with about 150 educators in higher ed from you know Kansas and Missouri universities. And that's what we talked about are what are the steps we can take to, to ensure that especially our students of color feel safe coming back on our coming back to our campus um, you know next week and, and the weeks to follow and one of the things we talked about is just assuring them that this is a safe place for them and that the university, the administration, the faculty, staff will do everything to make them feel safe on our campus. Our university police um, are, will be very vigilant. Um, it, was, it was a good conversation, but, but above all, we have to make sure that we are communicating that to our students as well you know, the phrase, if you see something, say something. If something feels off to you, don't go it alone. Contact someone and let them know. Even if it ends up being nothing, we rather would err on the side of being safe than sorry. And so, you know, on our campus on Monday, we're going to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a vigil at 6 p.m. in our oval. We're doing it outside. Um, and I think it's important that we have that event, even with COVID. Um, that's why we're doing it outside, because we want people to understand that we truly believe in his life. We truly believe in the work that he did. 
And I think it sets a tone for our students coming back to campus as we start, you know, with the, the celebration of his life that diversity, equity, and inclusion matters at Pittsburgh State University, um, not just for his life, but for your life too. And we want you to feel like this is a, a campus that is accepting, um, a campus that is welcoming, a campus that is ready to have you back here because we know what how great it is to be on this campus, not just here, but our other region institutions are doing the same thing as well. But they're doing it on the side of caution because they are more some campuses more than others, um, depending on what their population is that's going to be coming back. I'm sure you know, like for example, K-State has said they're just gonna go virtual for the first two weeks of this semester um, for COVID and just to make sure as a form of security as well um, for their students. And so, you know, they've had some more other issues than other institutions have had. You can look at that, look it up for yourself and see what they've had going on there. Um, but I think just reassuring our students that we want them here, that they will, will be safe here. We will do everything in our power to make sure that they feel safe um, are, are gonna be some of the tenets that we follow in the weeks to come. You know, and this has never been a place, uh, fortunately, um, we've been blessed in the sense that this has not been a place that's regularly has a lot of riots or violence or, you know, uh, I, I think that we tend to be, um, I think our, 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 I mean, we don't have a ton of, we don't have as much diversity as we, we probably would like to have, right? Like that we would like to encourage because I think there's folks that maybe don't feel comfortable coming here, but not because they feel uncomfortable because of the people. It's more just, it's a very homogeneous place. Like it's, it's very, you know, that, so we've been fortunate that we haven't had uh, any of the violence or those sorts of things. I mean, is it something that do you have really serious concerns that we could see some more of that? Oh, no, no, no. You know, you know what I think we see more here, um, Sean and Brett. Um, we see what we call microaggressions here. You know, it's, it's more of, if you will, let me use this term, a closet racist, where they just kind of say things, you know, snidely that they think that you may not catch. You know, that, that's what our students experience more so than anything else on this campus. It's not the blatant, you know, somebody coming out, maybe calling you an N-word to your face, but, but there are, are microaggressions that are just as hurtful as if somebody said that. Um, the way a faculty member says your name or mispronounces your name in a classroom full of people or overlooks you or sidesteps you all of those things are things that our students report to us that make them feel very uncomfortable. Um, and those are the things that, that we're trying to address. Because again, as I said before, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. You may say something and you don't realize that it's hurtful or harmful to someone else. So I don't think we would have an act of violence on our campus next week, but I think that in conversations or in things that people might say to, to you or to me, um, the way that that information is processed can certainly be different and it, and it can be very harmful. So when you were, you were talking, we were talking earlier about this notion of how do we change this? And, and I think that uh, you talked very much on it. It actually was a micro level, you know, it was not, you know, you were talking about changing hearts. And, and I think that what, most of us can probably realize is that government's not great at changing people's hearts. 
policy uh, and, and statutes are not great at changing people's hearts, right? They're, they're, they might be great at setting the parameters, right? They're, or setting the, and I was having a conversation not too long ago with, a, with one of our elected politicians and, and this individual said to me, you know, if you, if you want to change politicians and politics, you need to change people. Right. And I think that is so, that is so true. Uh, and I think fundamentally, it's something that I feel like I, I look at this uh, from a historical lens, from a political lens, that I feel like that at some point, one of those, one of the founding principles of this nation was that idea of the importance of self-governance, of, of, of you being kind to your neighbor, of character, of these kinds of things, of, of decency, things that President-elect Biden is, is really focusing on, and I appreciate this sort of notion of just the basic decency notions, right? And, and instead say, instead, we want to force people to believe the way we do, be a government, but, you know, those sorts of things. You know, how, do, I guess then, sort of, sort of then, how do we do that? Uh, I think, I mean, one example you gave was with the churches, and I do think that there is a serious um, reckoning that certain uh, folks who have considered themselves Christians are going to have to have with themselves and, 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 and people and something bigger about their complicity and enabling of this over the last, you know, uh, number of, of months and years. But how do you think that we do this? Is it, is it really just a matter of as simple as pulling it down to, Hey, be kinder to each other, talk to each other, be nice to each other, you know, listen to each other. I mean, how do we do it functionally? Like what's the, the operations of that? Well, I think functionally, as, as an organization, we do it through training. And what I mean by that is, you're right, we can't, we, we will never be able to change the heart of people. That's something that you have to do a self-examination of yourself, and you've got to make a decision that, hey, I may not have been lining up the way that I think I am, but that comes from you. But as an organization, we have to do due diligence to make sure that we are getting, putting the information out there that, you know, treating people fairly, treating people equitably, equitably, that is the standard by which our organization is going to live by. Um, you can't decide, I don't like this person, so I'm not going to give them a good grade, or I don't, I don't, um, like this person, so I'm not going to hire them, or I'm going to give them a bad evaluation, or I'm going to sidestep them, if you will. Um, so we have to begin with um, leadership saying, these are the tenets that our organization is going to live by. I'll give you an example. Last week, I did a workshop for some faculty at another campus, and the question came up about um, young men on their campus, they, they, they wear their pants sagging. And a faculty member asked me, how can I address that with a young African-American that's sitting in my class? And I said, well, you definitely don't do it in front of the class, but you use it as a teachable moment and you pull him aside and say, can I talk to you for a minute? I wanna know why you like to wear your pants that way and have a conversation with them. And I said, and the conversation goes like this. I'm so glad that you're here at such and such university. What is your goal? Do you wanna graduate from here? And I hope the student says, yes. I wanna to talk to you about even a work study position 
or um, preparing you for going out into the real world and getting a job. You and I both know that a lot of students are like, I want to own my own business. I want to, you know, I'm going to, you know, if you ask students today, I want to be an entrepreneur. Well, you're still serving the public in some kind of way. If you're your own business, you do, you are relying on people to come to your, your business, right? And so it's about that professional orientation for the rest of your life. What, what image do you want to carry? How do you want people to respond to you when they see you? And so I said, you have that private conversation with them and say, the reason that I'm having this conversation with you, I'm not judging you, but I see something great in you. And the first step to that is dressing for success. And dressing for success doesn't include me seeing your underwear. He was very grateful for that. And in fact, after the workshop was over, he's been sending me emails asking me other questions about different things that he's experienced over the span of teaching. He's like, I never felt comfortable asking these questions to anyone else. And I'm so glad that you were our, our speaker. And I just feel a connection with you. And can I keep asking you questions? And I'm like, okay, for sure. But again, it happens one person at a time. And him feeling like he has a liberty now to have those kind of conversations with students. I said, you can't embarrass people, but you have to let them know, hey, I see something great in you and I kind of have a stake in your future here and I wanna see you make it to the next level. So th that's a way, you know, from an organizational standpoint, because sometimes we, we're very judgmental. Um, you know, we make a snap decision about someone after maybe a 30 second um, engagement with them. And so how do we turn that around into something positive? Even not only for ourselves, but also for the student, because it also makes you feel good when you can help someone else. But again, it happens one person at a time. Well, and I would say, you know, as, as, some, as a fellow Christian, as someone who, who takes my, my faith or tries to take my faith as seriously as I, as I can, um, Really, what it seems like we're talking about here is, is, is this sort of like a very basic thing of treating others as you want to be treated, right? Like loving your neighbor as yourself. These, these are sort of difficult things to live sometimes. I mean, because of the brokenness of our, all of our respective hearts. But, um, you know, how do you do that on a, outside of the organizational side of things? Like, how do, you, how do we do this in a community sense? Like, you know, we like to talk here about you know, what is, is, is Pittsburgh as a micropolitan area and Southeast Kansas sort of like an, a doing and, and how can we be better and what are we doing to be better somewhat to tell our story internally, but then also for people in other places that are similarly situated to say, oh, we could do that too. So, so how can we as a community, like even outside of individual organizations, do these things that you're talking about uh, and embedding those sort of notions of equity and inclusion and treating everyone as yourself? Kind of thing. I, I, you know what? I think we're already starting to see some of that, even um, within the community of Pittsburgh. I think that, unfortunately or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, it kind of starts at the top, Sean. And what I mean by that are there are people who you naturally are drawn to because of their charisma, because of their leadership ability, because of what they bring to the community. And we have some amazing people in Pittsburgh that are already doing great things within this community and being able to help them, um, if you will, enlarge their territory 
or enlarge their lenses and say, okay, I've done a lot of, of great things for this particular population, but who else is out there who might need a helping hand? Who else is out there who, um, due to their circumstances, have found themselves in a position where the services that I provide could be helpful? Um, you know, there's a person in our community right now that is trying to help people of color own homes. And there's a lot to home ownership. Those of us who own homes know that. There's the maintenance piece, you know, there's the, the savings piece for if something big breaks, how are we gonna pay for it? And so there are so many things that the community could be doing to help people in terms of um, how do you save? How do you know which handyman to use in town? How do you know which carpenter or which roofer? There are skills that, that we can share with people because we've already walked that walk. We've already talked that talk. And so I think as you look at out in our community, there are so many smart people here. I mean, look at what we've done with, with Block 22, with the makerspace and, and, and engaging creative minds at the high school level, the college level. And so being able to then provide those same opportunities and those same services to maybe disenfranchise groups of students, of people, and giving them an opportunity to see, you know what, my life can definitely be different than what it is right now. And this is an opportunity that I'm gonna hold on to and I'm not gonna let go of. And so I think looking at those people in our community that have the opportunity to give of themselves in mentorships, um, you know, getting out in our schools, it's hard with COVID right now, but just, just being that light within our community, I think that's a way that we can definitely continue to make progress within the community of Pittsburgh. Um, what about COVID? I just wanna ask a little bit about how, how you manage it, how your office has managed it, what, what you think about how we handled it as a university in the fall and, and how we're looking at this spring. Well, COVID's been horrible for everybody. Um, I think all of us know someone who has been affected by COVID. We've all know someone who's lost their life to COVID. Um, I think the university did a great job, honestly, in keeping our students as safe as possible. Um, our faculty and staff as well. Um, I couldn't be more happy with, with the, the measures we put in place and continue to put in place. I think it's the impact of COVID instructionally, Brett, is where I think we probably have taken the hardest hit. And I say that because between March and August, if you look at a survey that was done um, by USA Survey, 4 million homes, not just in Pittsburgh, but nationally, don't have Wi-Fi. And we're asking students to do virtual learning, not just higher ed, but K through 12. And so when you begin to look at those disparities, how are kids gonna do work when they can't connect? How are they gonna take exams? How are they even gonna upload a paper and send it to us? And so that's where that empathy piece comes in again, where faculty have to be willing to bend and work with students. And those are conversations that have to be had, you know, in private, via email, or tech, or however that student's able to communicate to say, you know what, I don't, my family doesn't have Wi-Fi. And I have a hotspot 
but man, I burn it up quick trying to do all my work. You know, the university, we did some nice things. We, we added extra internet in the parking lots for people who wanted to come to campus and sit in the parking lot and do their work. But what about students who live in Wichita, Northwest Arkansas, you know, Western Kansas, Tulsa, and still don't have access? So that's an area that I think that there was definitely a gap. And we saw that as the grades came in in December, that students really struggled. They really struggled. And not just the academic piece, but let's not forget the mental health piece that goes with this. And I think all of us, if we're honest, man, our mental health was taxed this last semester. Just, just our normal, and I, and I call it first world problems, okay? Not being able to go the way we used to go not being able to do the things that we were able to do. I mean, I found myself having some pity parties a few days too, just like, man, this is hard. This is, hard. yeah, I got a warm house to live in. I've got internet, I've got, geez, Netflix, Hulu, Showtime, H I mean, you know what I mean? You got it all, but it, you, you still felt empty. So imagine how some of our students felt who don't even have those niceties. And so I think COVID, has definitely impacted our students' mental health. You know, and this is uh, during my uh, PhD work, one of the courses that uh, I took was one on the digital divide because it was education-focused PhD, obviously. And, um, you know, I don't know that I had been exposed fully to, to, to what that means, you know, uh, until that course. And, and, and I think that, you know, as people tend to get their hackles up when you'll say systematic racism or systematic injustice or systematic impediments. But the truth is, is that there's a great example of something people wouldn't usually think about that is a structural impediment. We'll call it that, right? A structural impediment to people of lower socioeconomic standing, white and black, mm -hmm. from having the same access that, that we enjoy, that my kids enjoy. And that inherently then is, creates a, dis, a, a disparity and a distinction that that, that, that 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 young person, especially in the K through 12, and then you think about higher ed too, uh, it's one more hurdle that that unless you're almost a superhero, you may not be able to get over it because, sure. you know, um, and I will say like one thing I want, I do want to, to that point, I want to throw out a little bit of a, of a kudos to our community in that uh, the way in which, and I was fortunate to be involved in the, in the, uh, in the, um, uh, Crawford County Recovery. I've been involved in helping lead that, and, and Jay Byers, who's the deputy city manager for for Pittsburgh, as uh, the co-chair of that. One of the things that he, working with superintendent with uh, uh, superintendent at USC 250, and uh, was to create a, a private cell network in Pittsburgh. They used uh, uh, Spark dollars, stimulus dollars, to create a private. It's it's one of the largest private cell phone uh, uh, networks in the country actually uh, most robust uh, and they work with Motorola to do that so that now the idea and the hope being that obviously then because of owning the infrastructure for that if you have kids that are can't afford uh, cell phone service or can't afford internet they can provide these hotspots that have unlimited amount of data to their homes because we now this community owns the the means of it right so you're not reliant on somebody else and so I want to do a kudos to that because I think that there is something that, that our folks here, I will say, we may, we're, it's always about the more perfect, right? We always want to be more right. perfect. The truth is, is that I think that there is a embracing of 
at the root, a lot of what you're saying of trying to address these structural impediments that people who are in poverty, who are lower socioeconomic standing, who are, are black, brown, et cetera, like that they're facing. I think that you have leaders in this community who really do want to help to, to knock those barriers down. Absolutely. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Even when we do it imperfectly, I think there's good intent. I think we have, I think we have folks Absolutely. that are committed. And I think so too. I, I think so too, Sean. And, and, and to that point, I think, you know, the access piece was certainly a big piece, not only for our university students, but K through 12 as well. The other, the other piece of that is, especially with our K through 12 and even some of our higher ed students, um, let's face it, there are all different types of learners. Some people need to be face-to-face. -face. Some people need a structure of a schedule. And let's face it, some students just fell off because there was nobody there to push them. And if you're going back home and, and your parents are going to work every day and leaving you there and you're sleeping all day, you're not getting your work done. And that happened to a lot of K through 12 and higher ed students that just lost track of time for whatever reason. You know, their, their schedules got mixed up. They're staying up all night, they're sleeping all day. Well, when are you doing your work? And we, we saw a lot of that happen too because of COVID. And I think, you know, again, that depression piece was a big, big part of that too. I'm hoping that, you know, I don't know about this semester, but hopefully in the fall, it'll be a fall that we all recognize again. That would be nice, for sure. That I don't want to get. I don't want to get. That would be fantastic. Too, yeah, <laughs> uh, I don't want this to become the new normal for much longer. No, we're gonna forget what it was like before all this. Um, I don't think we can forget, but. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. When you get to a place where you start matching your mask with your outfit you know, becomes yeah. a problem. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Deetra, as we, you know, one of the things we like to do kind of toward the end of the conversation, just ask a few kind of random questions, uh, but sometimes they're, they relate to the broader topic. And uh, one of the things that Sean asks a lot, which I really like is who, who do you, who are you reading? What are you reading right now? What are you watching? What do you listen to music wise? Uh, my, my music is very eclectic because I, um, work out on the treadmill, the elliptical, and I ride a bike. So my music is all over the place. And actually, I'll tell you what I'm reading right now. I, I do a lot of uh, audio books because, you know, I commute. Um, and so right now in my audio book playlist, what I'm reading right now, it's called An American Marriage. And it's a great book. It's by Tayari Jones. Um, and I'm almost done with it. I probably have like the ride home. I'll finish it. Um, so I've got a couple of different, different books, you know, in there. The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane is one that I read a few weeks ago. Um, so you want to talk about race. Of course, I try and read some things, you know, related to education as well. Um, so a couple different, you know, a couple different books. I can go through a good audio book in about one or two days, you know, driving in. Um, and again, yeah, my music is pretty eclectic. Um, I, I listen to a lot of different things. Just, just what, whatever. I, I try it. My, my daughter, my 13-year-old has Apple Music. And sometimes I'll say, what are you listening to? And I don't like some of her stuff. It's all over the place. But sometimes she'll have a really good song. And I'll be like, oh, that's a good song. And, and I'll say, will you put that on my phone for me? Because, you know, sometimes I'm technologically illiterate. And she'll, she knows how to do it, like, really fast. And 
Um, so I'm just kind of all over the place, but I try and read things that are meaningful. Um, over Christmas, I, I read White Fragility. If you haven't read that one, that's a really good one to read. Um, and it just, it's a book that talks about white privilege and how, to, how we can navigate uh, white privilege and help people understand what it means to have white privilege and what that looks like. So. so do you have any, uh, uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about are these quarantine binges. Are there, are there any sort of uh, like content uh, shows <laughs> that you binged, podcasts that you like? Was there any, like for us, uh, my wife and I, we binged Yellowstone, uh, that's, that series over, over the break. Uh, was there anything that you, that you do that oh with? My God. I watch so much stuff that I can't even tell you. Um, I just finished Monarco on Netflix. It's just two series. It was really good. Um, uh, Bridgerton, of course, was awesome. <laughs> Everybody watched Bridgerton. That was really good. Oh gosh. I watched so much stuff. Sometimes I click on there. I'm like, God, I've already watched, like, I'll look at something and be like, Ooh, that looks good. And then it'll be like, you already watched it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Queen's Gambit. I'm, Did you watch Queen's Gambit? Uh, yes. Yes. That was really good. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah, that was. Yeah. We've had some good content. I mean, I, you got to be honest; like they're producing some great content for home. So it's that's helped uh, those of us who who are fortunate enough to be able to have access to those things. True. It's helped, uh, I think, uh, with the mental health aspect because uh, there is no doubt in my mind. This just has confirmed it every day that we're not meant to be alone. True. We're not meant to be outside a community, and so that's a that's a really important thing uh, for us to, to do. So uh, although there are aspects of the, the before time that I think it'll be good to have the opportunity to have burned off, you know, I think there's, there's some of that thing of maybe not focusing enough on uh, actually DeAndre mentioned this, not enough on living, right? Like not enough on the, on just being on yeah. being present on, I think there's some of that we, lessons that we can learn in that regard. Uh, yeah. And I hope we don't lose those. And so if you think about the lessons that were learned by that, that you learned, like, so if you think about the things that for you in 2020, what were the most impactful and important lessons that you'll take forward uh, into this year and beyond? You know, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned is I don't have to say yes to everything. And it was really nice to not be on so many committees like, you know, even within our community, um, it's, you know, I, I, we're very active with our, our children because I believe that they need to see our faces at the table. Um, everything went virtual. So, I mean, we could still be a part of it, but I'll be honest with you. The other night we watched the high school basketball game on YouTube and my husband was sitting across from me and I said, you know what? I said, I don't know that I'll ever go back to a gym and watch a game. He, and he looked at me, of course, he, of course I was halfway kidding, but I was halfway serious. And he said, well, why? And I said, Mike, look at us. I said, we're in our pajamas at seven o'clock watching high school basketball <laughs> and we're eating dinner and we can like, just be ourselves and be relaxed. And, you know, you don't have to dress up, not that you dress up for a game, but you know, you got to look nice, you know, cause yeah. It's half game, it's half hobnobbing, campaigning, whatever, you know, <laughs> with people. And I said, man, doesn't this just feel good? And he just looked at me like, I'm ready to go back to the gym. But it was great, you know, to just sit there and, and, and you know, all of our committee work is, is pretty much, he's on a lot of things, involved in a lot of things too, in independence. And so 
it's all been on Zoom, which he's still at home at the kitchen table or, or in his office working. But it's nice that we don't have to like physically go there, <laughs> you know? And so, and I've decided that, you know, I mean, we only have one, one kid left at home, Lorraine, 13. And I'm like, gosh, I just got to get through five more years of these committees and then I'm done with this stuff, you know? But, but that's been a nice, nice thing for me. I mean, I know people enjoy, and I do enjoy it, but it's been nice to like come home at the end of the day and know that I don't have to like cook dinner real fast and go out the door for a 7 p.m. something. So for me, that, that's been great. Um, another thing is just really valuing family. Um, Mike and I probably have lost about seven very close friends to COVID. Um, we actually have a friend right now who probably within the next few days will probably pass away. Um, and that's been really hard on our entire family. But I think from that, it, it's definitely made us value our family more and spend as much time as possible with, with our family as we can. And just that, that connection, I think it's been, been really good for us to just kind of realize that it's nice to be involved and do things, but it's nice to be home too. Yeah, very sorry to hear about your friends that you've lost. That's that's tough. Yeah, and uh, and several of them are our our age, and and I don't. I mean, I'm in my 40s, so I'm not old. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Right. And it's yeah. it's just it it it's one of them was my one of my college roommates, and and she literally just got married in in 2018, and now she's gone, and it's it's just a horrible time. It's a horrible time for her family. So yeah. it, it's, it's been very, very, very stressful. So, you know, COVID is not, it's not just taking the 70 and 80 year old, it's taken, you know, the young person too. I, I consider myself fairly still young. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's a, I think sometimes the COVID fatigue or whatever, sometimes people, you know, forget to take it seriously or just choose not to anymore, but man, it's, you have to. Yeah. The real thing for sure. Um, well, any, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Do you have any, uh, any slices no. of wisdom you want to drop? Just love each other. And I think look for the good in one another. You know, there's a song that says, I, I need you, you need me. We're all one big family. And, the, and part of it says, I won't harm you with words from my mouth. I love you. I need you to survive. And I think if we live by that and just say, I won't harm other people with words from my mouth, it'll take us a long way, you know? As, as we look forward to next week, the inauguration, I think we look for some healing, we look for some restoration, and, and we're looking for hope. And, and, and I truly hope we can find that. Amen. Yeah. Amen. That's Amen. right. Let's live in hope. And, yes. and uh yeah what a better way to honor dr king absolutely and remember monday is not a day off it's a day on <laughs> find a way to give to your community and it doesn't have to be anything big but find a way to give back whatever that looks like for you very well said absolutely well Dietra, thank you so thank much you for your so time. much Dietra. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate our time together. Yes, oh, we do too.
We do too. And we'll be talking again uh, once, once you're ready to, to talk in more detail about that climate survey. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, guys. Thank you again. Thank we'll you, Dietrich. Good to see you. You too. Bye-bye.